welcome to For What It's Worth, a podcast from Raymond James designed to help you plan, invest, and live smarter. Hi, listeners, and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Paige Lenson. You can find more episodes of For What It's Worth on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. In this episode, we'll be discussing the oil market. It's drawing the attention of investors and consumers alike as prices have surged and geopolitical tensions continue to flare. To share more about the latest developments, I'm really pleased to be joined by Raymond James Director and Energy Analyst, Pavel Molchanov. Pavel, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Can you get us started by talking about what are some of the primary factors influencing oil market conditions right now? State the obvious, the most important uh, story indeed on, on the planet right now is the war in Ukraine and energy is front and center uh, in this conflict. Uh, Russia is one of the three countries that supply 10% each of the world's oil. And Russia is also the second uh, or, or the largest uh, exporter of natural gas in the world. Half of Russia's oil goes into Europe. Three quarters of its gas goes into Europe. Needless to say, Europe is the most directly affected by the war in the sense of higher energy prices. Uh, but in oil uh, particularly, this is a global market. And just because America is far from the war and historically buys very little oil from Russia, that does not change the reality that oil prices are close to all-time highs and the price of gasoline as uh, drivers know all too well this summer driving season is at record highs. Can you talk a little bit more about the impacts of this conflict? Is some of the surge due to the actual conflict itself? And, and I know related sanctions have a big impact as well. In a physical sense, this war is resulting in reduced oil supply from Russia for reasons that are a little different from sanctions as such. So when the European Union imposes, as it will by the end of the year, an embargo on Russian oil, that is not literally preventing Russia from exporting oil because of course, Russia can send oil tankers to other parts of the world, China, India, Turkey, countries that are not enforcing sanctions themselves. But separate from the embargo policy, what we have seen is a reluctance on the part of international companies to do business with Russia as it relates to oil and in fact, you know, other Russian cargoes as well. So shipping companies that are operating the, these oil tankers, in many cases, do not want to touch Russian oil. Reputational risk is something these managing uh, teams are concerned about. Uh, and 
Uh, in some cases, there is pressure from investors to uh, disentangle, to divest from Russia. Uh, we've also seen uh, you know, energy producers from the United States and, and, and Europe are separating themselves from Russia by divesting. Uh, and that is having a physical effect on Russia's ability to produce oil with the same level of productivity that those oil fields had before. So when international companies pull out of Russia, they take their technology, their labor force with them, and that is physically reducing Russia's ability to produce. So, so you put the sanctions on the one side and the private sector uh, uh, separation from Russia on the other, and all of that is having a negative effect on Russia's exports. Let's turn to that sanctional side for a moment. We've heard that European Union leaders have confirmed uh, plans for an oil embargo against Russia, specifically for seaborne imports. How significant of a move is that? The Europe buys 4 million barrels a day of oil from Russia based on pre-war statistics. We actually do not have very clear statistics right now uh, for the following reason. In April, Russia's central bank decided to essentially block the publication of international trade data. Uh, information has a way of leaking out, but nonetheless, this is limiting how much we know. But anyway, 4 million barrels a day before the war uh, going to, to Europe, 3 million of that was sold by tanker, and the other 1 million uh, barrels a day went by pipeline. Uh, when you hear about uh, Hungary and, to some extent, uh, Slovakia opposing this European embargo, the reason is that these countries are dependent on a particular pipeline uh, going from uh, west to east, uh, from uh, east to west, uh, Russia into Europe. Uh, and that's really what this uh, pipeline conversation is about. Uh, but tankers, again, is 75% of, of the deliveries from Russia to Europe. Uh, that oil, for the most part, will still be exported once the embargo takes effect at the end of the year. Uh, but it's not going to go to Europe. Again, those barrels will go to China, India, Turkey, uh, you know, not the United States, of course. Uh, the question may be asking is, well, what's the punishment for Russia if all that happens is the tankers are rerouted to another destination? Here's the answer. It's not just about how much volume Russia sells. It's also about the price that it's able to charge. When all of us see the price of oil on our screen, we usually look at Brent crude. This is the global benchmark. Russia is currently selling its oil at the widest discount in history, 30, 
$5 a barrel. Wow. Before the war, that discount versus Brent was $1. So what does this tell us? It tells us that there is a shrinking pool of prospective buyers who are willing to do business with Russian oil companies. It's, it's not nothing. Somebody is still willing to buy those barrels, particularly in Asia. But the discount that Russia is having to offer is massive. So that $35 a barrel discount equates to an economic hit for the Russian economy of $200 million every day, or $70 billion on an annual basis. So if we suppose that the war lasts a year, I'm not making a prediction, but just hypothetically, that $70 billion hit would by itself shave off 5% of Russia's GDP. We've been talking about oil and reputational risk related to purchasing oil from Russia, um, sanctions and embargoes against Russian oil. What's happening when it comes to natural gas? Are you seeing all the same effects, all the same sanctions being discussed? With natural gas, there is no European embargo and there is no plan to, to impose one anytime soon. As counterintuitive as it may be, it is Russia itself that is taking what, what I can only call extremely short-sighted and totally irrational steps to cut off gas supply uh, to a, a large set of European countries. In the last eight weeks, we have seen Russia deliberately for purely political reasons, cut off gas supply to Poland, Bulgaria, Finland, the Netherlands, and certain companies in Germany and Denmark. This is not because those countries are banning Russian gas. It's because Russia has made its own political calculation to use this gas supply cutoff as a kind of political blackmail to essentially retaliate against European government. So for example, in the case of Finland, the retaliation is for Finland's decision to apply for NATO membership. In the case of Poland, it was because Poland refused Russia's demand to pay for the gas in rubles, the Russian currency. This strategy on the part of the Kremlin is irrational and short-sighted because it will not work. It is having, in fact, the opposite effect. Russia has proven, separate from the war itself and, and, and the politics, that it cannot be a reliable energy supplier. Who could possibly want 
to continue doing business with a country that can abruptly, out of the blue, shut down your gas supply uh, for selfish political motivations. Like every war, this war will end. And at that point, the decision makers in the Kremlin will presumably want to restore normal economic relations with Europe. And they will try to go back to these countries like Poland and Finland and say, okay, now we are ready to start selling you natural gas again. Well, the response from those countries will be thanks, but no thanks. We don't need your gas anymore. These countries are, for reasons that they did not themselves create, having to find alternative energy suppliers, whether it's LNG from overseas, renewable energy, or more become more efficient in how they're consuming natural gas. Those steps will be permanent. So once those trade relations are broken and these countries stop buying Russian gas, that's going to continue on a permanent basis. You mentioned renewables, and I'm I'm glad you did because I'm curious. Do you think that overall this period of high oil prices, contention with many different countries and Russia, is that going to have a meaningful impact on the growth of or overall interest in renewables decarbonization, or is this you know one small variable in a trend that's already moving? If we had this conversation six months ago before the war, it was already apparent that Europe is the world leader in energy transition away from fossil fuels and towards low carbon energy sources like solar, wind, biomass, green hydrogen, as well as electric vehicles. The war will further accelerate that process. So for example, last year, 19% of Europe's car sales were electric. That's not a huge percentage, but it's the highest in the world. In the United States, it was only 5%, for example. Now that Russia has proven itself to be an unreliable energy supplier and the oil embargo will take effect by the end of this year, and oil is $120 a barrel, just as a general premise, how can European households and businesses protect themselves against these record high fuel prices? I mean, the short answer is electric mobility. So we will see and are already seeing further acceleration in EV sales. Now that's happening in the US, it's happening in other parts of the world, but of course in Europe, the geopolitical urgency is, is particularly high. 
Uh, same thing with things like wind and solar. You know, natural gas in Europe is the most expensive it has ever been. The price of natural gas in Europe right now is three times what it is in the US. Wind and solar are already economic, even with the US level of gas prices. But if we're talking about natural gas three times more expensive, wind and solar is a no brainer. And that is a big part of the European Union strategy called Repower EU of disentangling itself from Russian gas as quickly as possible. Turning to the United States for a minute, the price of gasoline, it's one component of the consumer price index. A lot of investors are watching it closely as as a, a measurement of inflation. But what level of connection really exists between the U.S. economic environment and the global oil market? The average American consumer uses about 400 gallons of gasoline per year. So the difference between you know, let's say $3 gasoline from a year ago and $4.50 gasoline today, you know, is roughly $600 of extra out-of-pocket cost. That's a meaningful amount of money uh, to an average family. And of course, it's it's particularly problematic for individuals on lower incomes. And it's worth pointing out that even in uh, parts of the country that you would think benefit from higher oil prices like Texas or Alaska, the, the average household is still a consumer of gasoline. So even if somebody you know, live, live, lives in Texas, which is producing a lot of oil, you know, for residents of Houston or Dallas, more expensive gasoline is still cash going out of their pocket. Same thing, by the way, applies to entire countries like Canada and Norway and uh, Brazil that are exporting oil. When the Federal Reserve looks at the level of inflation, the tendency is to look at what's called core inflation, which excludes food and energy. But in real life, of course, we cannot exclude those things. People need to eat and and they need to fuel their vehicles. So this is adding to the inflationary backdrop in this country and practically everywhere else. When the war ends, and again, I, I'm sorry, I cannot make a prediction of how long that will be, but eventually every war will come to an end, including this one. You know, at that point, oil prices will subside. Now, that does not mean they will go back to where they were 
necessarily before the war, but there will be some uh, alleviation of, you know, of pressure on, on, on oil prices and therefore gasoline. Uh, in the meantime, all I can say is uh, there are steps that all of us can take to reduce the burden of expensive gasoline. And no, it's not just buying electric vehicles. Of course, not everybody you know, want, wants to do that. Uh, but we can take steps to use our cars more efficiently. You know, this is something that airlines and uh, businesses have been doing for a long time. You know, optimizing routes in, in some cases, uh, downsizing to you know small smaller cars, uh, and it, it may mean you know not taking a, a vacation if, at least in the sense of driving a, a long distance this summer. Uh, other than that, uh, there is not much that any of us can do when oil prices are this high because it is a global market. And what happens in uh, in Ukraine or what happens in China uh, or anywhere else affects the price of oil for all of us. One closing question for you, Pavel. Are there any important dates or key events that you'll be watching for as we move forward? Well, clearly we, you know, as we talked about, None of us can, can predict how long the, the war will last. That will be a fundamentally political decision made in uh, Moscow. Uh, and we, we have no, you know, the, the US government and the and European governments are able to uh, you know, punish Russia for, for the war and to you know, reduce the amount of money flowing into Russia. But ultimately the war will end when uh, Russia uh, decides to end it. Well, beyond that, we should also be watching what happens with uh, COVID. You know, it, when we think about how cheap oil was in, in 2020 and, and much of 21, that's because of COVID. You know, the pandemic is not over. Uh, it's it's certainly subsided, you know, thanks to vaccination, but but it's not over. Uh, if there were to be a, a worsening uh, of the pandemic heading into the next winter, which seasonally is generally you know something we should expect, uh, that all else being equal, will you know, reduce oil demand, for example, you know, through less, less travel and you know, prices, you know, would cool off to some degree, you know, based on that alone. Of course, this happened since, since uh, six months ago as part of the Omicron wave. Beyond that, uh, it's simply a matter of watching what happens with the global economy. You know, if, um, there were to be an economic slowdown from higher interest rates that would, all else being equal, help reduce demand and and cool off oil prices. Uh, but the but the war is uh, by far the most important variable and uh, the one that is the number one question mark. 
Raymond James director and energy analyst, Pavel Molchanov. Thank you again for your perspective, Pavel. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. For what it's worth, I'll see you next time. All opinions and information, including any price references or market forecasts, correspond to the recording date listed in this episode's description. Any performance figures noted do not include fees or charges, which would reduce an investor's returns. The information contained in this podcast is not research, nor does it constitute the provision of any investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or recommendations to the listener. Raymond James and its financial advisors do not provide tax or legal advice, and you should discuss any tax or legal matters with the appropriate professional. Past performance is not an indication of future results. There is no assurance any investment strategy will be successful. Investing involves risk, and investors may incur a profit or a loss. Investment products are not deposits, not FDIC and CUA insured, not insured by any government agency, not bank guaranteed, subject to risk and may lose value. Copyright 2020 Raymond James and Associates Inc. Member New York Stock Exchange, SIPC. Copyright 2020 Raymond James Financial Services Inc. Member FINRA, SIPC. Raymond James and Associates Inc. and Raymond James Financial Services Inc. are affiliates of Raymond James Bank. Investing in the energy sector involves special risks, including the potential adverse effects of state and federal regulation, and may not be suitable for all investors.